Hey, I'm Emery Parker. And I'm Brooks Brunson. And this is Understand South Carolina. We're here each week to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State and provide the context that gives it meaning. So today we're going to do an episode that I've been wanting to do for a really long time. We're going to talk about the news, like the news itself, how we make it, why we do the things we do. And I want to do this because I can't possibly overstate how often I get into conversations with friends and strangers in real life and online about how news works, about how journalists do their jobs, about the decisions that we make. I think talking about this stuff can be weird for us because we don't want to make ourselves the story. But I think it's important because times change and journalism is changing as well. And it feels like nobody really who's not a journalist understands. Like, it always shocks me. I'm like, oh, wait, you don't even know about this thing. Right. Yeah, it it does. I think, yeah, we we kind of we live this day in and day out. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we just do and kind of take for granted. So. So today, we're joined by our own executive editor here at the Post and Courier, Mitch Pugh, to hopefully give you a better understanding of how the news itself works and to answer some common questions. Hi, Mitch. Hi. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a a basic question, just get this out of the way. What is an executive editor? That is a loaded question, (laughs) but I will try to answer it um, as uh, succinctly as I can. Um, You know, obviously, uh, with the word executive in front of it, it's a little bit different than a typical editor. Kind of the way I I guess I would describe it is think of it sort of as the CEO of the newsroom or the chief executive officer of the newsroom. So I don't do reporting or take photos. Um, I do do a little bit of editing. There are other folks that do that in the newsroom. I look at my job as trying to take the talented people that we have in the newsroom and put them in the best position uh, to be successful, uh, to give them overall direction in terms of what our goals are, not only as a business, but as a journalistic organization and sort of be the chief quality control officer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, like I said, I I do some editing, but I don't do a ton of it. I I remember when I first started as as an editor of a newspaper, um, one of the editors in the newsroom came to me with a question, and I looked at her and I said, you know, I'm not a very good editor. (laughs) (laughs) And she was appalled um, because she thought, you know, know, as an executive editor, I should have, uh, uh, you know, Terrific copy editing skills and um, and and have a, the the best grasp of grammar of anyone in the room and that's really not my job. My job is to um, again put 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 the team in the best position to be successful mm-hmm. and make sure that we're living up to the standards um, that the Post and Courier right. readers expect from us. Right. So even even though you're an editor, and this is true for a lot of editors, you that doesn't mean that you're sitting down like in front of words and changing the words around like maybe people think when they think of the term editing. But I feel like you guide the stories though. It's more yeah. like. You guide the direction of the story rather than... I think that's fair. At, at times, I sit down and move yeah, the words well, around yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we, we all do a little bit of that yeah, from time um, to time. But, but you know, we have other editors that yeah. do that job every single day, yeah. 40 hours a week. Well, so let me let me ask another just really, really basic question then. Why, why do we write the stories that we write? How do we decide to write the stories that we do? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, at its, at, at its core, um, and, and we have a whole lot of data points available to us now that as journalists that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago. Um, But at its core, what you're trying to do is think about what your audience, uh, in in this case, it's the the people who read the Post and Courier, uh, are going to care about, what's going to affect them, what's going to impact their lives, um, what decisions are being made that are going to impact their lives, what's happening around them that's going to change how they go about their day-to-day. And make sure they're informed about that. Make sure they understand um, the forces that are shaping that. 
uh, and what it's going to mean for them and for their families and for their livelihoods. Because that's what most of us care about. We're all... At the, at the end of the day, pretty selfish, you know, animals. Yeah. <laughs> we want to know how this impacts us. How, you know, how does this affect me? I mean, and I think that's the first question we try to answer when we're determining whether our story is something that we should write. Well, how is this going to impact um, the people that read our newspaper? And, 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 and mm-hmm. So I want to get into a little bit about how the types of stories that we've decided to write is changing a little bit in the digital era. And yeah, also- I mean, do we, are we just— Writing stories to get clicks now is that that's what everybody says, right? right? Exactly, um, and I think that you know, I think it also would be worth explaining to our listeners what Emory and I's jobs are because I don't know if we've ever really done that on the show because both of us have uh, are also editors, we're not the executive editor. <laughs> uh, Mitch is our boss. Yes. Um, but yeah, if they could explain to me what they do today, that would be really great. Yeah, people never <laughs> understand what Emory and I do. We do right. a lot more though than just a. Uh, host this podcast. Um, so uh, my like official title is audience and digital operations editor. And that has to do a lot with what types of stories we write. Um, so I work with the newsroom and talk about uh, what the audience data tells us about what stories are important to our readers. But we're not looking at clicks. You know, I think uh, one thing that's really important for readers to realize and that I think a lot of people don't is that like Someone clicking on a story doesn't do us anything. Um, well, I don't know if I don't know if I'd say well, it doesn't do sorry. us anything, but sorry, that's we don't make we don't we don't, we don't make, make a lot of money off of off of clicks. Right, sorry, is, I think I don't think a lot of people realize that. I've, I've you know I feel like I've seen you know part of my job is I oversee our presence on social media and I see a lot of people comment and be like like one time some person was like. They just made that headline because they get five cents a click. I'm like, that's not. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's a long history that got us to this point in, in journalism. And this is not the first time in the broader history of the craft that journalists have been accused of doing things for clicks, although it wasn't clicks back then. Right. Um, you know, we've gone from being, you know, mostly free you know, almost like pamphlets distributed and, you know, after the Revolutionary War that were free and, it, and in a lot of ways were the clickbait of that time because you had to get people to pick it up. So you had to have sensational headlines. Um, it's sort of where the phrase yellow journalism yeah. comes from, too, a little bit. There's a whole history there. Anyway, um, but I think how we got to this point is really interesting because I, I, I sometimes I, I, I know we recoil when we hear people talk about you do things for clicks. There's also a good reason why you would pay attention to clicks. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, so I think it's, it's, it's somewhere in the middle, like, you know, cause like it used to be, I mean, I can just in my time in this industry, when I first started out, if you read a newspaper and compared the way it was written and crafted to a really good newspaper today, it was really boring because the stories were selected and written for sources, for government officials, for the journalists, friends, um, and they were written in really difficult, dense language, uh, a lot of jargon, a lot of things that we now know to strike from a story. So there was a time when, yes, we weren't writing for clicks, but we were writing for probably the wrong audience. And that wasn't a great period in journalism either. And then, yeah, we started getting um, more into the digital world where we had access to all these analytics that told us what people click on, you know, how long they spend on those stories, et cetera. And I think we did get to a point where maybe, especially at places not called the Post and Courier, <laughs> where um, we were chasing clicks and, and, and a viral story, something that 
thousands and thousands of people clicked on and were, you know was shared on websites like the Drudge Report or FARC uh, was mm-hmm. a thing that was widely celebrated in a newsroom because, oh, look at this. We got all these clicks. Um, and you know, now you're starting to see that shift across the industry as a whole, but certainly in our building in the last few years of not looking so much at that, but looking at the quality of the visits that are coming to our website, who those readers are, where they're coming from. Are they likely to become paying subscribers? Are they engaging with the stories longer and spending more time on them and finding more value? So I do think that is our overriding ethic now. Mm -hmm. But it's also not, I don't think it's, I think it's dismissive to say, oh, you're just doing that for clicks because clicks are a indicator of whether or not people are actually interested in the things that you're writing about. Right. Right. And what Mitch just described about, you know, how we're, you know, looking at uh, the quality of, we were looking more at the quality of the clicks now and not just about the number of clicks. It's like, but the number of clicks are important in terms of like, obviously the more visitors we have on our story, the more people it's impacting, the more people are reading important Mm -hmm. work or Mm -hmm. a story about a cat cafe, which I wrote once and it blew up. So, uh, but what Mitch kind of described at the end there was essentially what my job is. So I work with our whole social media presence, all of our newsletters, what stories are selected to be in the prominent spots on our website and why, and look at web headlines. And, you know, when I first started um, working in digital, when I was a digital producer, we were chasing clicks a lot more back then. I remember Mitch, you used, remember how excited we used to get? I mean, we still get excited when stories blow up, but it mm-hmm. was like. Well, I mean, of course we get excited. We still get excited. We, we, we want people to read our stuff. We, we get excited when, when we see that we're having impact on the world in any way. And, and that one way that you do know that you're having impact is to see, you know, big Absolutely. traffic on a story. Of course think, you want to see it. And so. I think one thing that's important to point out in terms of what Brooks is talking about, because I, you're starting to see this a little bit too, where people think that because you're pursuing stories that people will pay for, that there is something ethically wrong with that. I think it's important to sit to point out that those stories, interestingly enough, the types of stories that people will pay for also match, you know, almost exactly with what I think most people would say a ethical, good journalistic organization is going to do. People don't pay us to read cat stories. You know, right? I mean, maybe, maybe. No, I haven't gotten to write one in you know, so long. Um, so we shipped but, them but, but they, but they are interested in deeply reported, interesting stories that hold government accountable, that are a watchdog for their interests, whether that be in government or picking a restaurant to eat at. And so, when you look at what actually readers are willing to pay for, and we say we're pursuing those kinds of stories, they also are the kinds of stories that I think, as journalists and as readers of good journalism look at it, you know, uh, values that we think are really important. I want to be careful that we, when, when we talk about those things that we're clear that it doesn't mean we're in this as, you know, we're not, we're not mercenaries looking for a, looking for the biggest buck. You know, it's actually, there's a synergy there that's actually really, yeah. really uh, nice to see. Well, that's really exciting. Yeah. So I like that you mentioned that we're not just looking for the biggest buck because that leads me to, um, I kind of want to give people like one of the things that we spend a lot of time, I think, thinking about, and everybody in, our, in everybody in our industry is like so aware of, is the financial challenges that a lot of media outlets are facing. So one of the things I was really surprised to see recently, the Pew Center did this. Um, they you know they have an annual survey of media attitudes, and one of the findings that really surprised me is that 
the vast majority of Americans think that local media outlets are doing really well financially and a small minority have considered or actually have financially supported like their local media. So I guess this gets into a couple of issues. Now, we have seen a lot of success coming out of like the big national outlets like New York Times, Washington Post. Mm. But so I guess this leads me into kind of two issues. Like one is, I mean, we're in it to turn a profit, but we're not necessarily in it to make a bank to, you know, just print dollar bills. But also, I kind of want to get into like, what's the difference between national and, and local media and what challenges are local media facing that's different than national? And may, maybe that's not cracking through to the the public consciousness like it, like we assume it does, you know? Well, there's, there's a few things to unpack there. So yeah. um, the Pew study looks at the local media landscape, not just as newspapers, which is how we tend to think about it, because that's the industry that we're in. They look at it more holistically. So it includes TV stations. Right. Um, and right now, TV stations financially are doing better than newspapers. They're still a demand for television advertising that's that's greater than the demand for newspaper advertising. Um, they're a little behind us, I think, generally speaking, on the digital front. But their you know their their TV broadcast, which is sort of their print version of their business, is still relatively strong. So that's probably part of it. But I do think that as an industry, we have done a poor job. And I, which is why I think some, a podcast like this is useful. Uh, we've done a poor job of explaining to um, our readers the landscape that we're facing. And I think we've tried to do a better job here locally with that when we've had to make changes that are partially brought on by market forces to, to explain to people, look, we, 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 there's some serious challenges facing our business. I think readers in some ways understand that and in other ways don't. And I don't think, again, we've not done a very good job of talking about that because in some ways we're kind of loath to talk about it, right? Like we don't want to go walking around telling everybody how bad things are. But, you know, it is, it's a challenge. I mean, Google and Facebook eat up a huge chunk of uh, digital advertising dollars that are essentially monopolies. They control not only the advertising dollars, in a lot of ways they control whether or not people find us through search or social media platforms to just read our stories, let alone pay for them. Um, so there are, the, the, the landscape has changed dramatically. I think that, like other newspapers, we're trying to change our business model to become more audience-centric and less advertising-centric. So for the, historically, newspapers have existed primarily based on two revenue streams, one being advertising revenue, which are the little boxes in the newspaper that have advertisements for JCPenney or Sears or a lot of companies that, you know, don't advertise anymore or some that don't exist anymore. Um, and, um, you know, a little bit from circulation revenue, but it, the audience piece of the, of, of our revenue pie was 20 to 30% historically. Um, it, we know now it needs to be more like 70% moving forward and we're working on getting there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tough, uh, landscape right now for traditional media and I think these next couple of years are going to be even tougher as we move toward this new business model at a speed that doesn't match the speed at which the old traditional model is declining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> there, you know, on that note, I see a lot of people um, on social media and just like when I'm interacting out there in the world with non-journalists, they get very upset about the um, paywall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it actually like makes them angry because they're like, Kind of like, why should I have to pay? And I, I think that this Pew study, you know, even though it does also refer to TV station, but kind of like backs up that notion because I think they think that we're being like greedy or something or like taking something away from them because, you know, there used to not be paywalls. I mean, we didn't have a paywall mm -hmm. really that was 
super strict until 2017. I mean, that's what we have to we have to have readers pay for our content in order for us to still exist. And and again, I think you know just just take a look at what's been in the news lately as a, an example of why it's important. You know, this is a little bit self important, mm-hmm. but I think we believe it's important that we exist, and not just because Brooks and Emery and I want to keep collecting a paycheck, but <laughs> although we do, I, but it's also, because, you know, I think the case that's in the news this week as we're recording this podcast is the Jeffrey Epstein right. uh, situation and uh, the sweetheart deal he got from our current labor secretary. None of that would have been known if not for one investigative reporter at the Miami, Miami Herald digging back through documents, talking to victims who um, had been shut down by this process and illuminating the fact that here was a guy who had been accused of some pretty horrific crimes with underage girls, with children, um, and had basically gotten house arrest. Or, you know, had, he was able to report to his, his office. And he, he looks like he got that because he was a powerful individual. So if no one exists to do that work, we may never have known about that. And that happens in every community across the country in big and small ways. That's obviously a very big national profile example, but it happens in small ways. There was a story several months ago in South Bend, Indiana, about a police department that had gone rogue and was um, having all kinds of issues with uh, the community and abuses of power happening left and right. And if not for the South Bend Tribune, which is not a nationally known name that I think everybody knows, they would have continued to get away with it. So if you think about why it's important to pay for journalism, it's not just so that we can get a paycheck or that Evening Post Industries could make more money. (laughs) It's because there's a public service being performed that if we don't do it, I'm not sure who is. I don't know that a local blogger is going to have the expertise and and, and money. Some do, but it's, you know, not there's not many that do. Um, Television news has gotten better at some watchdog reporting, but it's not their bread and butter. They still mostly focus on weather and crime and traffic, and that's fine. There's a need for that. There's a thing that newspapers do that very few other organizations do and a a value set that we have that very few other organizations do that um, we believe. And I think a significant number of the public believes is worth protecting. And, you know, it's really this is just something that I talk about all the time, but it's really scary right now that. You know, uh, so many local newspapers aren't doing well because I'm like, you know, our democracy was kind of built on having a reliable Mm -hmm. local news outlet. You know, I think that Mitch's point about like, is a blogger going to do it? But a blogger could write a story like this. Sure. But is it held to ethical standards? You know, like we follow very strict ethical standards of journalism that other places online aren't going to necessarily do. And that's really important with so much going on. The word fake news is relatively popular right now. That's the thing is that we're actually like the opposite. Like we're the ones that are like accuracy is so, so, so incredibly important to the point of like, if I'm trying to change a web headline on a story, I got to make sure that it absolutely accurately represents the story. And if it's like a complicated issue, like uh, for instance, the story we were talking about on last week's episode with the plutonium and the one that Thad Moore wrote, I had to go over like every single bit of the social media language and the web headline for that to make sure that there was nothing that wasn't even the slightest bit inaccurate or did not portray the information absolutely correctly. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that people don't really realize. I don't right. 
Yeah, I, I feel like that's that's one of the things that I see really frequently on social media, and it's a, it's one of it's a hard criticism to 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 really respond to because on one hand, I think I think people really underestimate how much effort does go into generating news. We have uh, surveys that kind of back it up that people, like a significant minority of people, actually think that journalists sometimes just make things up, and that's obviously not true. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like. With with all the effort that does go into preventing errors, sometimes errors do happen, and sometimes they are, in fact, careless. So it's but we always the, issue a correction. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's a big point of difference between a credible and reliable news outlet and one that is not. Is that a, a credible and reliable news outlet is going to make as much effort as possible to inform you of our own mistakes? Mm-hmm. We we don't want to hide those mistakes. Um, and we want to set the record straight when when they do happen. Well, I think you mentioned fake news, right? Right. So that's that's a thing that's developed in the last couple of years. And one of the things I always talk about when I'm talking with people about it, that is think about who you see saying fake news. Mm-hmm. Who are those people? And what is their agenda? And why would and if you think about who they are, they are almost always politicians. They are almost always surrogates for politicians. They are almost always people in power want to hold on to power. They are very rarely ever um, Joe Sixpack in Charleston <laughs> who is trying to live his life, right? I mean, it's, it has bled now into the culture and into partisan circles where people you'll see that from readers from time to time. But it started and it exists because politicians and cynical politicians and cynical people in power realized that they could use that as a club mm-hmm. to insulate themselves from the journalists and the, and the news stories that were trying to hold them accountable. So, I mean, just as you should read everything that you see in our newspaper or on our website with a healthy dose of skepticism, and I encourage all readers to do that, please do the same when you hear and see politicians talking on television, because as you all pointed out, they don't issue corrections. They very, I mean, how many times have you ever seen a politician say, I was wrong about that? It doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it usually makes news. I think um, it's usually we, the result of well, some I think, news. I mean, yeah. I, I'm just thinking <laughs> yeah. back to the last Democratic debates. One of the big stories that came out of that was uh, Mayor Pete from South Bend. When they quizzed him about the uh, diversity of the South Bend um, Police Department, they asked him why it wasn't more diverse. And he said, because I've failed. Mm-hmm. And that made news. And you know why it made news? Because politicians never say right. they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, as you guys pointed out, you know, when we make them an error, we will correct the error. We will run a correction in print. We will st- change the story online and put an editor's note on tell people what we got wrong and what we changed. And if you call us uh, because you, there's something wrong in the newspaper, we will talk to you and we will try to fix it. Um, and that does not happen from the people who are out there um, trying to sow um, distrust in the media. That doesn't mean we don't, like you said, we get things wrong. Right. We make mistakes. Or human beings. And you should hold us accountable to those. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, it's not fake news. Fake news means a very specific thing. It means purposely fabricated false information that's being shared with the intent to, you know, deceive people. And we do not do that. Yeah. I mean, if we make a mistake, it is like it's by accident and, you know, we panic about, I know, like, I mean, you know, we're, yeah. we're not happy when we make a it, you know, we always want to be accurate. I know that's, that reminds me of um, one of the most just like shocking statistics that I have seen maybe in the last like year was this um, Columbia Journalism Review Reuters Ipsos poll where they were just asking people basic questions about how news works. And 
Uh, they, they found that 60% of all respondents believe that reporters get paid by their sources. And so what I wanted, I wanted to just get into a, a, like a, a conversation about like what accountability means here, because that's obviously a huge red flag or not even a red flag. That's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. If a journalist is getting paid by their source, they'll be fired. Yeah. People. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that people necessarily mm -hmm. think about like how we try to keep ourselves accountable and, and the fact that we actually do have a lot of standards about like what you can and can't do. You In, in some cases, I'm I'm actually like even really careful about like accepting gifts. Yeah, you know, I was like, say, yeah. We we're not. We don't accept gifts. Right, I mean, if yeah. someone brings you a gift and you can't return it, you know, what we will do is we'll put it out in an open table for everyone in the entire organization. Right, if it's food or something like that, um, so that everyone shares it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there are very specific rules about what you can and cannot do. You cannot um, donate to political candidates and parties if you're a journalist. That's one of our rules. If you're donating to a party, then you can't be a journalist. I mm -hmm. mean, that's not something that we allow. Um, you can't, you know, be helping candidates for office in any way. I mean, there are very specific rules. The things down to yard signs are frowned upon. I mean, we don't, your spouse, I guess, and the rest of your family have to have some freedoms, but we are, we are very paranoid about that. Um, you know, it came up in Iowa and I worked in Iowa in the caucuses where you have to show up in person to vote in the primaries. And you know, our journalists did not participate in the in the caucuses for that reason. You know, they need to stay above the board. Doesn't mean you can't vote. Um, some journalists vote, some don't. I will tell you that I have not voted in an election in probably ten years, and I've done that because I have a position where I feel like I have influence over what happens um, as an editor, and I don't want to be swayed. I don't want. I don't want to have um, a stake in the outcome in any way. And mm -hmm. I, I, that's that's a pretty hard line. I don't think everyone needs to take that. It's an individual decision, but that's how seriously we take it. We right. think about it down to that level. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. That. I actually did not know you had not voted. Yeah, ten years. Wow, I have voted. That's, I think that's okay. great. I think yeah. you, I think it's an individual decision, and if it doesn't, if you don't feel like it's going to have any bearing on who you are, the way that your work is perceived, you should absolutely vote. I think it came up in Iowa is probably mm -hmm. where it started for me and the caucuses and the way that things are done there. It was very public and people would ask you all the time, well, who did you vote for? I don't want to lie to people, right. but you know, so I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to lie or say, I'm not going to answer that question. I don't think that's a good position to be in as a journalist. I should be open and be able to answer almost any question anybody asks me. <laughs> so I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? It's just better for me not to vote. Right. Right. And I mean, like, I think, you know, a lot of people probably kind of balk at that and, and think, reflexively that not voting is like disengaging from like civic society. But uh, I mean, <laughs> who, who is more, more engaged in that than, yeah. than journalists? Well, are. there's not that many of us in journalism. Right. So <laughs> if we are sort of pure, I think that's okay. There's plenty of people that are right. out there voting and, and, and our job is to help well, them the, make informed exactly. decisions. They're, they're voting and in some cases their votes are influenced by the articles exactly. that they've written. So, you know, like you, you have had an influence in, in the, and the, and the kind process, of influence right. that I feel like as a journalist we should have on that process is to give people all the information right. they could possibly need to make an informed decision. That's right. our job. Yeah. So on that note, you know, one thing I think we really wanted to get into in today's episode was so we work really hard to come off um, as objective are as we, possible. Are we getting into opinion? Oh, yeah, we're getting okay. into opinion. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and, you know. Everything that you see in like the news section of our website uh, in print, anything that's coming from one of our reporters is, you know, an objective piece 
of journalism and there is not a political agenda or any kind of agenda coming from the reporter. However, we do have an opinion section. So, Mitch, can you kind of explain like what it's the difference between the people that work um, in opinion and the people that work in our newsroom? Sure. And it's different, you know, um, in other places. We can talk a little bit specifically about how it's different here. Uh, in general, of course, um, the news pages are, as you said, um, the work there is done by reporters. They have editors, hopefully, in, in every operation, but certainly in ours, it goes through three or four editors before it's published. Um, so we are looking not only just for clarity and all those things, but bias and um, making sure that none of that's, you know, is seeping into the reporting. So the, so the news pages are very different. They're very the objective. Our, our goal is to be um, fair and, and accurate. I always uh, stay away from balanced because balanced isn't always accurate. <laughs> so, um, um, but fair and accurate. And the opinion pages are different. Uh, that's where there is opinion. And it's informed by the experiences and beliefs of the people writing it. Um, and there are journalistic standards still in opinion journalism. You can't just make things up. Uh, your opinion should be based in fact. Um, you know, it's not it's 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 not a place for fake news either or fake opinion. Um, but it is different. And in, in specifically in at the Post and Courier, uh, the, these two departments are completely separate. So I report to the publisher of uh, the, the, uh, PJ Browning is the. Um, publisher of the Post and Courier. Uh, she's the vice president of um, Evening Post newspapers. That's who I report to. The opinion page editor, Rick Nelson, does not report to me. He does not report to PJ directly, although she you know, has conversations with him. He reports to the chairman of our board, <laughs> Pierre Manigo. Um, and that has been that way for many, many years. And the, the, the local folks that own our paper believe that's super important, that those two things are separate. They report up separately. We actually just uh, were talking about that today because we have a story in the newspaper about a Charleston police officer that was disciplined for uh, the way they were writing tickets. Uh, there's also an editorial uh, in the paper, and the editorial has information that's not in the article mm. because mm. the opinion people do their own reporting and their own writing, and they knew things that we didn't know. And so that just shows you that there's no coordination. It's completely separate. Um, they do their own work. And again, it's yes, there's opinion there. They do endorsements of candidates and, and things of that nature. Has no bearing on what our journalists are doing. I don't care who they endorse. It's not going to affect how we cover the news or who we choose to cover or how we choose to cover them. Um, you know, when I first moved into this digital role here, a lot of people were sharing opinion pieces on Facebook and saying like, look at how biased the Post and Courier is, not realizing that it's not a news story. You know, um, to this point, can't emphasize enough that these are separate. I, I, okay, what what is the editorial board? What does that term mean? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I, there's lots of jokes that come to mind, but I'll, I'll refrain. Um, you know, I think that typically speaking, it's a group of journalists, because these are still journalists, who are responsible for the editorial direction of the editorial pages, which is, you know, when it was just print, that's how we thought about it. Now there's, you know, an editorial section online. Um, then they, you know, make decisions as a group about what the newspaper as an institution thinks about certain topics. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it reflects everyone who works at the newspaper. It does not reflect um, what the people who work in the news department of the newspaper think. It, it, it's a reflection of that editorial board who represents sort of an, an institutional voice. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I think as we have evolved as news consumers, 
And as the, the sort of news has proliferated across the internet, um, there's, there's really interesting conversations happening in our industry about the value of that. Mm-hmm. You know, do, do we need to have an institutional voice? Is that still something that's important? And there are very compelling arguments on either side of that. Um, it does in some ways feel like an old fashioned idea. Um, but as Brooks said, I think that a lot of people turn to opinion because when opinion journalism is done well, it's basically uh, uh, an argument being made for a position where you're trying to persuade someone to see your point of view. And if you are able to read two persuasively written opinion pieces on a topic, it may help you shape how you think about it if you're not sure. And I think that's a really valuable thing to have. I mean, that's why we have you know debates back in the day, and why we have debate clubs and things of that nature. You know, um, and I, but I think you know in our as the public and the electorate has become so polarized, it's become very very challenging in the last ten to fifteen years to be able to have open honest debates and persuasive conversations about topics without people coming to blows. All right. So I think I think we've uh, may hopefully clarified opinion a little bit, but I, I do want to get into one thing that I, I know confuses a lot of people and generates a lot of controversy, and that is anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. So what, what what's an anonymous source? What does that mean? When we say a source is, when people talk about an anonymous source, what, what does that even mean? Just to... Sure. Typically, it's someone with direct knowledge of a topic or a situation uh, who does not wish to be identified for a host of reasons. We can talk about that a little bit here in a minute, Mm -hmm. but um, is willing to have the information that they know. And again, usually that's someone with direct knowledge, whatever that issue is. um, They're willing to have that information shared with the public. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are for reasons they believe are you know, critical that they cannot be identified. And sometimes those reasons are good reasons. And I think for the most part, um, the media is good about understanding that. And then there are times when people wish to remain anonymous for bad reasons or reasons that are not good enough uh, mm-hmm. to grant them anonymity because, it, you know, it's embarrassing or it might make them uncomfortable. It's not a good reason. Right. We very rarely use anonymous sources at the Post and Courier. A recent example of when we did was when we were talking to were a story about issues with how the airplanes being made at the Boeing facility here in North Charleston were being inspected. So people who had direct knowledge in that wanted to share information that they had um, related to that, but were worried if they did, they could lose their job and face uh, recriminations for that. And that's a little bit better of a reason and right. reason why we might grant anonymity. But we, we always know, as an editor, I know who that person is. I know their name. I know what their job is. I know what their direct knowledge is. Um, usually they have documents. Almost always they have documents to back up what they're saying. And we can vet that person mm-hmm. to find out, do they have an agenda? What is that agenda? Does it influence the, the validity of what they're telling us? I mean, there's a lot that goes into granting anonymity to a source yeah. in our newsroom. I think that is true to most newsrooms. I would say generally... There are times when I see the New York Times and the Washington Post sometimes violate, I think, their own rules about uh, granting anonymity. And that is frustrating for me because I think that is something that the public really struggles with, as you said. And we need to be really, really careful with that. I don't think we should grant anonymity to a source who simply wants to share gossip about another, you know, mm-hmm. political foe. And I see that every once in a while seep into journalism and that worries me. But I think, you know, when, when you're reading an anonymous source from the Post and Courier, we know who that person is. We know exactly who that person is, and we have vetted them, and we have had in-depth conversations mm-hmm. about whether or not to grant that anonymity. So definitely not just our way of making up people. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
And I don't believe that's true. I mean, I, I'm extremely confident that's not true for any other news organization, even if I might quibble with how they grant an anonymity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good point, too, about if the Washington Post does do something like that that, you know, we might not necessarily do here. That hurts us because people just make assumptions like the Washington Post does this, mm-hmm. the Post and Courier must do this, and that's you know not necessarily. Well, and now there are news sources out there online that are – they could be anything from, you know, uh, Breitbart to um, Bits News to a community newspaper that, you know, is new or, a, you know, a startup website. And they don't have the same standards that we do when it comes to granting anonymity. And so that does blur the lines for people in ways that I don't think we had to deal with 15 or 20 years ago. All right, well, I think uh, to maybe wrap this up, let's, let's I want to get back to what we kind of started talking about, which is the business side of, of um, the news, because I think that's another interesting thing that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. You know, we, we mentioned that right now print is kind of struggling. That obviously wasn't always the case. And in fact, there was there was a time not too long ago in our lifetimes when, when print was super, super profitable. And we saw kind of the creation of these behemoths, mm-hmm. these, these big conglomerates like Gannett, your McClatchy's, uh, your gatehouses. The, these are names that might not be household names, but they actually they own probably the brands that you are familiar with, so like Gannett, the state, like yeah, the Greenville is, News. Gannett is USA Today. I feel like yeah. our readers will yeah. Re- recognize yeah, you, that. You probably yeah. probably recognize USA yeah. Today. Yeah, Tribune is, a, is another big one. Um, these these are companies that, that formed at a time when when uh, print was was really really profitable and, and mm-hmm. really good. And it's it's a big topic to get into, so we don't have to totally get into it here. But I, I mean, I think the the slowness of those companies to adapt to um, digital changes, I, I think, has, has been a big part of the story of why local media, local print media is is struggling maybe a little bit more than the rest of, of the media is. But one interesting thing is that the Post and Courier actually is kind of weird in that we are not part of, of any of these chains or, or any of these conglomerates. We are an independent family-owned paper, and there aren't a whole lot of those left anymore. That's uh, true. Yeah. Do you, you want to just like talk about what, <laughs> well, what so, that means yeah, what to people that mean? and, yeah. and why yeah. is that important? R- really quickly, so the vast, vast majority of local newspapers in cities the size of Charleston and bigger are owned by large out-of-state corporations that own dozens and dozens and dozens of newspapers. Um, and the consolidation is actually intensified as uh, print has declined, even though that was why they formed mm-hmm. was because it was a great business to be in and you, you, you were literally printing money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, there was a time wall street loved print. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and that, those times, those times are sadly gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's how they formed. And, 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 and now with, you know, the, 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 the business sort of falling apart a little bit, the name of the game is consolidation. So they're all, you know, they're, they're buying up more and more, because you can s- still turn a profit um, by cutting costs and centra- centralizing everything. So if you um, are reading uh, the Raleigh paper in North Carolina, there's a good chance it was laid out in Charlotte, mm-hmm. you know, and things like that. So um, which makes sense to a degree. But what that does when you when you own a large number of papers like that and you are a publicly traded company, it changes what your goals are. So as an organization, they they are legally obligated to um, do what's best for their shareholders. I mean, they are actually legally required to do that. And so that's a very different uh, way of approaching 
governance of that, you know, your job is to maximize your shareholders um, position. So it, it puts pressures and strains on these companies to cut costs to make as much money as they possibly can. I think that's changing a little bit as those investors have understood there's a long game here <laughs> that they need to be a part of. But for a long time, you know, there were you were cutting. I came from a publicly traded company when I started here six years ago. And every quarter, we would have a, a new number that we had to cut out of our budget every single quarter. And every quarter, you would have to walk out into your newsroom, into your building, and look around and try to figure out who gets to stay. And that's a really depressing yeah. <laughs> situation to be in. Now, we're family-owned. It's different. Um, you know, They don't have shareholders they have to worry about. They're not legally obligated to do those things. We don't carry a ton of debt like some of these com- companies do. Um, so they want to make them a, a buck. Um, and they want to make a profit just like anybody else. They don't want to lose money, but they're okay with a very small profit. Um, they also own other things. We're lucky that this company owns a forestry company. They own a, a hospice care companies. They own real estate. They own healthcare. Um, so we're just one piece of the business, but they really care about Charleston. They really care about South Carolina. The, the, the family that owns our newspaper has been here since the 1700s. Um, so they're in deeply invested and if they make a couple bucks every year, they're happy as long as the quality of the uh, newspaper is still where they feel like it should be because they have to go to church and the grocery store and everywhere else with our readers. And they're going to hear about it if we have cut things down to a point that other newspapers have. So, yeah, we're very fortunate, very lucky. It doesn't insulate us from the challenges that the industry faces. We still have them. We still have to make tough decisions, as people know and have seen um, with some of the decisions we've had to make over the last few years. But we are in much better shape than our publicly traded peers. I talk about this a lot in the newsroom. If we were owned by Gannett or McClatchy, we'd have somewhere between 20 to 30 less journalists in our newsroom than we do today. How many do we have total? Uh, 82 at last count. Yeah. I actually don't know the answer to this. I'm not sure if you guys either. I mean, are we the only locally owned newspaper in South Carolina? No, there are others. We're the the largest. Right. And if you think about the biggest cities in South Carolina— um, they're almost all served by, except outside of Charleston by a publicly traded company. There are very, very few of us left. And when you think about the big players, um, that's how we sort of, we, we compare ourselves to other um, privately owned organizations because the goals are slightly different. So we look at places like Boston. Uh, the Boston Globe is uh, owned by a private individual. We look at the Minneapolis Star Tribune because it's owned by a private individual. Um, the Dallas Morning News is a corporation, but it's a local corporation. Um, so we look at organizations like that. The Tampa Bay Times is another one. Um, and those are the those are the folks that we compare ourselves to as our peers because we know we share the same value sets. We know that our goals are similar and the landscape we're facing is similar. But there's very, very few of us left. I don't, whenever I say this to non-journalists, they're always like, really? Like, you know, that in South Carolina, like, so McClatchy owns... The State, the Island Packet, and... Uh, Beaufort Gazette, Myrtle Beach, Sun News. And the Charlotte Observer, right? Yep. And the News and Observer in Raleigh. So it's like, those are all owned by one of these corporations. And Mm -hmm. Greenville News is owned by Gannett, which is USA Today. And how many papers does Gannett own? Which I'll say, I guess, a hundred at least. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I know, like, you know, my grandmother has, she lives in Greenville. And she always is so confused when she sees, like, USA... USA Today branding like on the paper. She she's she always asks me like 
are there still journalists in Greenville? You know, she does. She's like, is this USA Today? Oh, there, it's the, you know, to there, be clear, are. there there are, yeah. there are, yeah. yeah. But um, you know, I just I'm not sure if like you yeah. know the general public like realizes kind of the differences there. So I just wanted to explain. Yeah, and in fairness to those journalists. They're still doing great work. Oh, they're work. doing amazing work, yeah. I mean, the, the Greenville News just did a great series not that long ago on uh, asset forfeiture that was amazing. I mean, they're still working very hard and trying to do great work. They're just facing challenges and strains on their ability to do that that we are fortunate enough not mm-hmm. to face. We can still have three or four editors read a story before it goes into the newspaper. I know from coming from those companies that you're lucky to get one or two, you know, and they're doing great work, but they're, they're just the deck is stacked against them, unfortunately. Well, I think that that's probably a, a good place to wrap this yeah. up. Yeah. Well, can I do say one more thing? Sure, yeah. One more thing. One more thing. So, you know, you've heard me say this on the, this podcast before. And if you've ever interacted with me in person, I say it a lot. Getting a digital or print subscription is really important. You know, if having watchdogs, hold uh, the government accountable, holding public officials accountable, sharing um, important information about your city, whether you live here or anywhere else, and having a newspaper or news organization that follows like these kind of ethical standards that we do um, is really important in, in order for there to be somebody looking out for the people. So, you know, when you hit that pay meter, I mean, the paywall on our website, you know, know that you deciding to subscribe helps, helps there be a voice for you. Mm -hmm. That makes any sense. And that's, you know, for us to continue to exist, we need people to subscribe. And say one more thing about that, because I think you raised a really important point is, and, you know, I think that a lot of the times people feel like the news is something that is done, done to them. <laughs> you know, right. Like it's produced and then um, handed to them. Um, and I think that's something that we have learned in the last couple of years is that this really is a relationship and that um, we depend on your support financially, but we also depend on your support in terms of communicating with us. So, you know, be an active participant too. I mean, we, we love that you will pay us. And as Brooke said, that's really important um, to ensure that quality journalism continues to be done in this market, but also reach out. I mean, by being a subscriber, you have access to things that other people don't. You can get on our subscriber-only Facebook page and talk to journalists directly and ask us questions. Call us up. Um, send us an email. Message us on social media. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you think, what questions you have, and, and and we will answer them. And I think that's something that people don't really always appreciate. That they feel mm-hmm. like we're sitting in some ivory tower. Right. We're not. We're with oh, yeah, you. We, we read everything. We read everything <laughs> that everybody sends well, us. And, and, we're, and we're no different than you. We're going to the grocery store. We're <laughs> figuring out how to get our kids to school and, you know, all those sorts of things. And we want to hear from you because without your support, both financially and um, just sharing information, we can't do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that not everybody understands this is a it's a community truly um and we are a part of it and if we're not having that relationship with you then we can't be successful we are one of you we're a part of the, the community and you know we aren't doing this we don't take home big paychecks we uh <laughs> we don't work great hours <laughs> um you know we we do this because we think it's really important for our our democracy frankly so yeah. bottom line we care we're trying we're listening subscribe Yes, and if you want to reach out uh, or have any questions specifically about this podcast, what we've discussed, we do have you know an email for this podcast. It's understandsc at postandcourier.com. Mitch, who's our guest today, uh, he's pretty active on Twitter. Is it at, at SC 
Mitch P. That's right. Or you can also email him. He is like, for such a busy man, he is very responsive to emails. I always see him because I'm on a few email groups with him. He's always responding to readers. And, you know, same with Emory and I. Yeah. You can even call us. Yeah. Yeah. we have, you know, we I, all have phones. It's called a landline yeah. or, or a cell phone. It's it's possible. We we will answer and talk to you. <laughs> it happens sometimes. It does. All right, Brooks. Do you do you feel like you better understand South Carolina? I mean, you know, this episode's a little different. I well, feel like I understand the news better. Yeah. You know, I you know the specifics of obviously I was pretty. I knew a lot about the how the Post and Courier works. I've been working here for five years, but you know, I what I didn't know was a lot of the stuff about. There were some specifics about how our editorial board works that I didn't realize until this episode. I didn't know that Mitch had not voted in 10 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, this this is a really fun episode to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciate anybody who has listened to the end here. Yeah. Do you guys feel like you understand the news better? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break the, break the pattern a little bit and say that, yeah, this is kind of a weird episode because we're doing one where all three of us are know what we're talking about. So. <laughs> a lot of times I don't know what I'm talking about in this show. This time I do. <laughs> so I would be a little bit concerned if I if I walked away from this, like, understanding the news and if I didn't before. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think this is an important topic. And I think that um, hopefully people out there understand a little bit better what we're what we're all about and what we're trying to do. Hopefully they help, they understand better how they can help us right. understand South Carolina better. Exactly. By being active. Cool. Right. I like that. Yeah. That was nice. Yes. All right. Thank you so much, listeners. Have a good day or night <laughs> or whatever time you're listening. Whenever you're listening. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.